NASA's Space Launch System, Starship, and the Return to the Moon. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's next moon rocket has reached its final destination before launching from Kennedy Space Center. The massive 212-foot-tall rocket will carry the Orion space capsule on an uncrewed mission around the moon and back, possibly launching at the end of this year. NASA's Charlie Blackwell-Thompson is the launch director for NASA's Artemis program, the agency's next moonshot. We caught up with Charlie at KSC last week, and we'll hear from her about this mission milestone and what's ahead for this massive rocket. Then, NASA awarded SpaceX a $2.9 billion contract to build the next moon lander for the Artemis program. The award didn't come without controversy. The two other companies vying for a piece of the prize, including Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, filed a legal protest. So where does this leave NASA's human landing system? Space business analyst and main engine cutoff host Anthony Colangelo brings us up to speed on the latest from the commercial space beat. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. It arrived by barge last week at Kennedy Space Center. The core stage booster for NASA's SLS rocket was carefully unloaded. Its four engines, which previously launched space shuttles, emerging first, followed by some 200 feet of orangish-brown tank. It will join the mobile launch platform and two solid rocket boosters already inside the vehicle assembly building, and soon Orion, a deep space capsule designed to take humans to the moon. Its first mission is Artemis 1, an uncrewed mission of the capsule on a trip around the moon and back. Launching that mission is Charlie Blackwell-Thompson. She's in charge of the firing room and the team that will send SLS on its lunar journey. I met up with Charlie Blackwell-Thompson at KSC last week as the booster was unloaded. So, so tell me about it. We've got the core stages there on, on the barge, getting ready to be offloaded. What's this moment like for you? This moment is exciting. It's um, hard to put a word to, to be honest. I mean, exciting is the closest I can get. Um, it is significant for me because it means the last piece of the hardware is here at Kennedy. And so it means that the next phase of integration is putting this rocket together. It, it's, um, it, it's a special day. It, it really is. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your role um, moving forward with this. Obviously, you're the launch director here, so you get to fire this thing into space. But what, what's your role leading up to that moment now that the hardware's here? So my role as a launch director, uh, as you said, is really to make sure that our team, our processes, our procedures, our timelines are ready to go on launch day. But that preparation starts even during our testing phase. Um, so we have several key tests that we'll do in the VAB in preparation for launch. Um, one is called the countdown sequence test, which is where we go through the, the milestones of launch countdown. We do it in the VAB. Um, we're not tanked, but it, it gives us the, a readiness for our wet dress. And then certainly we get ready once all of that testing is done. We roll out to the pad for wet dress, and then we tank the vehicle in kind of a trial run, if you will, um, um, and so our team is involved in that. The launch director leads that that test along with the CST. So there's a number of tests and milestones that I'll be involved with uh, along the way. But certainly my primary focus is, is definitely on launch day and making sure that we are ready to go. Uh, up until this arrived here, you've been running simulations and scenarios in, in your firing room. Tell me how that has gone. 
uh, what your team has done and how confident you are uh, now that the hardware's here. So my team has been doing simulations for um, for a while now, and that's a great thing because on launch day you want to have that muscle memory of how you work through problems and how um, and how you work through both a nominal day when everything goes right, and then when the hardware throws a couple things at you, you want to be ready for that as well. So we've been training for that. We've had that in in work now for. Um, just about a little over a year, maybe going on about two, but it is, uh, in fact, we have one today, Um, but they've been going really well. I mean, we are building a capability, and so just like anything, uh, as you are learning, you know, in the beginning, you're you're working on your protocols, you're working on how do we call these problems, and, and then you're building up in your complexity of the kind of issues that our sim team, our simulation team, will throw at us. Uh, and so our team continues to, to, to work through those um, very well. And as far as confidence, uh, I am confident that when launch day gets here, we'll be ready to go. Mm-hmm. So you said you'll do some testing in the VAB. Um, are, are you going to be a part of, of the integration process? I mean, are there certain things that, that need to hook up to the rocket that link you to the firing room? What's that process like? Um, there are absolutely things that we where we link up with the firing room. In fact, most of our testing in the VAB where any of the flight elements are powered on is done from the launch control center. Okay. So we use, that's one of the great things is we're able to use the software that's been developed. The software we'll use on launch day, many, many of those applications will have been used for, for months before because we'll use, for instance, you know, for powering up Orion, for configuring and servicing Orion, we have a set of software. Some of those same software displays will be used again during launch. The same for core stage, same for booster, same for the, the vehicle. So it really is this incremental um, use of capability so that you kind of build into this this bigger event and it's the same with the launch control center it's the same with software the testing of the core stage booster it faced some challenges from the technical side of things to acts of god with (laughs) hurricanes i mean this seems like a herculean task to get this thing here has that how it felt to you here at Kennedy Space Center? This is a long time coming? Well, it, it's definitely, we are excited and we feel like it's a long time coming. I think when you develop new hardware, you know, I talk about first. And first only come along, I've been out here for 30 years. And in my career, I've had two first. I was around for the very first elements of the International Space Station and I worked on that. And, and then now for Artemis. And when you build something for the first time, just like anything that we would build in our home lives, right? The first time build, there are going to be challenges and you're going to work through those things. And I think our core stage and our Boeing team did a great job working through, um, you know, working through the weather, working through um, any kind of technical challenges. And for me, our team was able to follow along from the firing room. So we had data that we were able to follow along when they did wet dress and hot fire uh, so that we could, you know, see that same data and we could ensure that any kind of any kind of issues that they may detect that we could have the opportunity to see them and correct them um, in our ground systems before the hardware arrived. Uh-huh. You said that this is another first for you, uh, but you have had three decades of experience. What, what kind of uh, 
lessons learned have you taken from, let's say, the shuttle program that you're bringing to uh, launching SLS? So one of the things that we did when we were putting together our launch concept is we went off and, and I was part of shuttle, so I was very familiar with it, but we didn't want to just focus on shuttle. Um, we wanted to look at commercial launches. We wanted to look at government launches that, that our team hadn't necessarily been a part of, like DOD launches. And so we actually reached out to a really broad community as we were developing how do we want our team to operate on launch day? And there are elements of each of them that we incorporated. Um, certainly coming from shuttle, that's where my background is. And so part of what we learned and some of the things that we incorporated is is our um, the way in which our launch team is is by discipline, if you will. Um, so that was how our shuttle launch team was kind of seated in the room. That was one of the things we tried something different during Constellation. And what we heard back from our team was, you know, there's a lot of synergy that happens when you're an electrical engineer or an avionics engineer when you can sit together. Um, that sounds like a small thing, but that was one of the things we rolled in from shuttle. Um, the way in which our teams communicate across our support launch team elements uh, and back to our suppliers, um, that was something we incorporated from shuttle but we also incorporated other things as well um and uh you know the use of technology the use of certain tools i mean so it's it's not exactly like shuttle um we've certainly tried to take what we believe are the best parts of it and roll it into how we'll do our day of launch operations uh-huh. you're essentially writing a new chapter in spaceflight history i mean how do you view your role um in in this new era that we're about to enter so I probably don't think about um, I probably don't think about it that way um, too often. Um, I I think about my role as how do we get ready for launch? How do we get ready for launch? Where's our team at? What do we need to do? Where's our procedures? Um, where are our timelines? You know, where are the maturity of our products? And I think because there is a lot to go do to get ready for launch, I haven't had that moment yet where I, I sit back and I think about what it is we're getting ready to go do in the, in, in the grander, you know, humanity sense. It's not lost on me, but probably day to day, I think more about those preparations for, for launch. Are you going to give yourself time to think about that after this thing launches? Absolutely, I am. And I'm going to take some time before it actually launches and, and do the same thing. And one of the, one of the things that I did during shuttle is um, as I came into the launch control center right over here, I would stop and stand out in the parking lot for just a moment, and I would look out at the pad. And during shuttle, the rotating service structure would be away from the vehicle. And you could see the shuttle always seemed like it was at night. It would be up against the night sky. It was just beautiful. And I would stand there. And sometimes I think, you know, when people are coming in and out, the hustle and bustle of, they probably wonder, why why is she standing in the parking lot? But I like to just take a moment and think about the job that was before us, to think about how lucky we were as a team to be a part of that. And I think about that today. I had that same moment just two days ago when the core stage arrived. I, as I was on my way home, I drove over here and I parked my car and I, I, I just sat here for a moment and I took it in that, that all the hardware's at Kennedy. We're getting ready to integrate this amazing vehicle. We're gonna test it out and we're gonna launch it. 
And that's something, right? That's something special. And so I actually took a moment just two days ago, um, and so I certainly intend to, to take those. I'm a big believer in you got to appreciate where you are while you're there. And so it's kind of my personal thing to take those moments as we move through this flow, as we move toward launch, to, to let that soak in uh, and to enjoy it because it does, it only comes a couple of times in a career. Finally, Charlie, the Artemis 1 will be uncrewed, but Artemis 2 will have a crew. Um, how does that play into uh, the way you prepare for a launch, knowing that humans are on the next mission? What's that responsibility? We prepare for Artemis 1 um, in many senses like we have crew. Um, our rigor, our process rigor, the way we call problems, the way we work through problems, um, the way we, if when we practice, um, when we have issues, all of those things are done in, in the same way that we will do it for Artemis II. Now, certainly, um, when we get to Artemis II, and you know that there's a flight crew on that vehicle, it does, it does change things. But what I want to do and what our team is is doing today is we are practicing as if, you know, with the same process rigor, with the same cadence, with the same, um, with the same focus toward the excellence in what we do, the same focus on how we go about working issues. Um, we're doing that in the same way that we will for Artemis too. And that's, that's great because it kind of lays that foundation and then we'll build upon that for, for Artemis too. Charlie, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was NASA's Artemis launch director, Charlie Blackwell-Thompson. Still to come, NASA awarded the contract for a key piece of the Artemis program, the lander that will take humans to the surface of the moon. But the pick didn't come without controversy. The protest over SpaceX's Starship lander that's ahead when Are We There Yet continues. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA awarded SpaceX a $2.9 billion contract to build the next moon lander for the Artemis program. The award didn't come without controversy. The two other companies vying for a piece of the prize, including Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin, filed a legal protest. So where does this leave NASA's human landing system? Space business analyst and main engine cutoff host Anthony Colangelo brings us up to speed on the latest from the commercial space beat. Anthony, welcome back. Oh, it's good to be back, man. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about, um, including this massive human landing system contract that was awarded to one company, which was kind of a surprise to a lot of people. What are your what are your first reactions to this? It's an aggressive move from NASA. Um, there there was a lot of if you read the document that they put up that says here's why we picked SpaceX as the winner of this human landing system. There's a lot of uh, different things that went into the decision, but I think when you look at the overall you know field of play if you will if you will it's aggressive for them because they one of the key things that they harp on in this uh, is that they didn't get as much budget as they needed to support more than one lander so spacex came in with a bid of three billion dollars blue origin turns out from a protest which we'll talk about they they were in about six billion dollars and dynetics was even higher than that so they didn't have enough budget to support even one lander. Uh, it turns out that SpaceX overall budget was enough, but their per year amount was too much, so they had to rejigger some of that stuff. But um, the typical thing for NASA to do is say, well, you know what? We didn't get as much budget as we needed, so we're going to slow it down a little bit. We'll still pick two companies. We'll just stretch the timeline back to 2026 or 28 or something like that. 
and keep the plan that we had. But this shows that they are serious about doing this Artemis program, getting to the moon as soon as possible with whatever budget they can get from Congress. And that's something that we haven't seen from them in my lifetime, for sure. I don't know a a good parallel, um, you know, in the last 50 years of NASA policy to do something this aggressive and say, no, we're doing it the way that we want to, but we're going to work with whatever budget we're given. Mm -hmm. Talk about the system that SpaceX um, bid. This is this is the Starship system that's, um, you know, under development to Boca Chica right now. Um, What is it and how will it work with a, a lunar landing? It is uh, their be-all, end-all, if, uh, if you want to look at it from not just the moon perspective. This is their next-generation vehicle that will be fully reusable. It's going to have a gigantic booster stage that is going to land similarly to the Falcon 9. Uh, and then this upper stage is called Starship. That would go to orbit, and there's different variants of it. So they're going to use a cargo version. There's going to be human versions. And then there's going to be this variant that is a Starship for the moon. And that is very specific Uh, It doesn't have wings. It doesn't have heat shielding. It has things that are specific for the lunar environment. Um, So that's an interesting beat there that they're specializing this, you know, all-purpose vehicle. Uh, But they're doing it because they think this architecture can work for them throughout the entire solar system. And it relies very heavily on these similar upper stages called starships that can refuel each other, that can do very complex uh, mission architectures um, but then, you know, there there are things that are unique about landing on the moon. They have to have uh, different landing engines because lunar dust is a big problem. Uh, regolith is the proper term for it. I don't know if Dr. Phil down in your neck of the woods is listening. He's probably mad at me right now. Um, but that's a huge problem because if you land with big rocket engines, you're going to kick up a lot of regolith, some of it into orbit. And it could come back around and hit you. It could damage other things on the surface. So they have to have special engines. They have to have landing legs that can handle the lunar terrain and handle leveling itself. There's so many specific things that are going to have to go into this. Um, but that's what you need to do if you're really going to make a good you know, lunar lander. Mm-hmm. And we've talked to um, Dr. Metzger um, plenty of times on this show. I'll, I'll put a link into that moon dust problem. Um, we yes. talked to- <laughs> the, I guess the other Dr. Phil. The, yeah, the not other, the- yeah. <laughs> Um, but I mean, even still, I mean, this is this is a huge kind of um, investment into this architecture by having NASA say this is going to be our, you know, sole lander for now um, with with the money we have. Um, but some of the criticism can be that you know SpaceX is developing this thing and it keeps blowing up. <laughs> I mean, t- tell me a little bit about the development of of this and, and can it meet this deadline? Yeah, and that's uh, the SpaceX development portion should not be overlooked because that is a big piece of this is that, um, you know, NASA, when they put out these bids, was asking for companies to put in their own money into these programs. They want to they see a public-private partnership in that specific definition, which is you are as invested as we are. Uh, and from this document that was posted, SpaceX said they're going to be covering more than half of the development cost. And you can see what they're doing down in Boca Chica, as you're referring to. They're already spending something in the billions of dollars down there. So... Uh, I think NASA saw this as, as a way to leverage heavy investment from SpaceX and effectively double the budget that NASA can get from Congress by saying, well, SpaceX is carrying so much of the load on this. Um, it is it is something that they're going to have to deal with now, um, that they have more eyes on them than they might have had before. I don't know necessarily if they have more eyes. Everyone was watching what's going down in Boca Chica. It makes headlines when stuff blows up down there. Um, but NASA seems to be embracing that methodology of they're testing early, they're into hardware, they're going to learn about you know defects or things that they hadn't considered much earlier than they would otherwise, 
And this is a development model that, you know, NASA used back in the day, back in the heyday that you'll hear about from Bill Nelson all the time. Uh, this was the way that a lot of aerospace happened in the golden era. And uh, if NASA is game, SpaceX is going to keep iterating. They're going to keep blowing things up, but they're going to get to a working product faster than they would otherwise if they spent years in PowerPoint or years in PDFs and documentation. It's just a different way of working. And uh, I think if you look at the progress that SpaceX has made in the last two years down there, it's hard to argue. They went from a mountain of dirt two years ago to a fully operational production site, a launch site, landing pads. There's so much that they've built out over two years. And that's just because they're like, well, we're not going to get it perfect the first time. Just keep working on it. Keep building out. And let's see where we get to. They've changed the architecture several times. Starship itself looks totally different every year. And that's just from them refining it continually. Uh, and taking their best guess, and then adjusting where things went wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to get that kind of old-school outlook of things when it comes to, you know, space hardware development. And, and there are going to be critics saying, well, you know, they're, they're moving too fast and, and whatnot. But it really is a paradigm shift in the way space hardware is developed, right? Absolutely is. Um, and I, I do think, you know, there's... There's always been critics of SpaceX that have said that uh, all along, even from early days, they were, you know, kind of fast and loose with requirements. And they were really looking at the industry and saying, why do we do things the way that we do them? Uh, everything is very expensive and very slow. Why does it have to be that way? And that was criticized time and time again. But you stand here today in 2021 and SpaceX is the premier space company in the world. Find me a better company that is operating in space today. They are flying cargo to the ISS. They are flying crew to the ISS. They are the sole provider of orbital space flight from the United States right now. They are the biggest satellite operator by a magnitude of six or seven times. They are launching private payloads. They're launching NASA science missions. They're launching national security missions, GPS satellites. They're launching everything. And uh, so you, those criticisms you have to put into context that, well, I know you've said that for 10 years, but Mm, it seems to be working out okay, and uh, I don't think it can be overlooked that the name on this document that I keep referring to is, is Kathy Leaders. She was in charge of the commercial crew program as SpaceX built out Dragon, and she has seen the success of their program up to now. There's eight astronauts on the space station right now. Hopefully four are leaving soon, but weather seems to be an issue. Um, and th those are put there by that program that SpaceX run. Now she is the head of the Human Exploration Department of NASA, and she knows what they're capable of, what their team's capable of. And she has the confidence in Starship that it can be pulled off because of the things that they've done before. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the two protests. Uh, there were two other companies that were not selected for uh, this initial contract. Um, who were they, Anthony? And and what is the, the grounds of their protest? Uh, Blue Origin led a team that was, they called it the national team. Uh, it was Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and then Draper. Uh, they were all contributing different pieces of the architecture. Uh, they've protested because they say that NASA, well, there's a bunch of different, it's a very long document. I haven't made it all the way through myself yet, so I'm probably missing one or two things. But they say that the requirement that NASA said, well, we couldn't fit all of these landers in a budget was a late change in their methodology. Now, I not to prejudge this, but I don't think that is true because NASA made very clear up front that they would like to select two, but they left the option open of selecting a single lander even from day one. So that is Blue Origin's biggest thing is that we didn't know that was the criterion. If we were given that information, we would have changed our bid. That, that to me is tricky for them because it's saying, well, we didn't know you had enough money for that. We would have given you a lower price. And it's like, 
based on what evidence are you going to give a lower price? I don't know exactly how that would play out from them. Um, there's some other things they're they're talking about uh, technical issues that were called out in Blue Origin's proposal, different communications arrays that were not actually going to work, uh, some different things about the architecture that Blue Origin finds issue with. Dynetics, on the other hand, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the grounds of their bid is because in the document that said here's why we picked SpaceX, Dynetics lander was said to not even be possible. Like it was more, it is more mass than it could actually be launched to the moon at this point. Um, so I'm, I think they're just throwing their hat in the ring just to see what happens. Um, all expected. I didn't expect this to go any other way. Uh, and it's just going to come down to, did NASA follow the protocol that they put out in the initial documentation? Uh, did they make the selection with those grounds? And was it fair? I think it will come out that way. But, you know, anything's possible, I guess, these days. Mm-hmm. And it's something like 15% of these GOA protests last fiscal year were actually sustained. So it's a very small percentage that yeah. actually move forward. So. Um, so, so more news um, from the space beat this week. Um, Senator or former Senator Bill Nelson was confirmed as NASA's new administrator. Um, Anthony, we've we've talked about Bill Nelson a lot in the past, and and you have a great relationship with his predecessor Jim Bridenstine. Um, I'm wondering your thoughts on what a NASA uh, under uh, Bill Nelson will be, and specifically how he'll work with uh, commercial companies. You know, I. I talked about this a lot on on my podcast because it's easy to think that bill nelson is going to be the same bill nelson he was when he was senator that he's going to favor florida he's going to favor the old spaceway um and that that stuff comes packaged with bill nelson i don't think that is necessarily true because he is a different role now he is in charge of all of nasa any success at nasa is now bill nelson's success and in his confirmation hearing a couple weeks ago um there was an interesting moment when he was being introduced and there was a cavalcade of people introducing him and saying how great he was and all this, you know, typical congressional stuff. Uh, One of them was Kay Bailey Hutchinson, who was, along with Nelson, the architect of the, um, you know, the laws that they've made that made SLS a thing. It it literally instantiated the space launch system into existence. Um, And at the time, both of them were saying, we should take money that we were going to spend on commercial vehicles and spend it on SLS to make it go faster. And they were literally saying, defund the commercial crew program, fund the SLS. That's the way forward. In this hearing, they both stood there and said, you know, our names were on those bills that passed all that funding for the commercial crew program. Look at the success it is today. It is an excellent thing that we have in this country. I'm paraphrasing, but this is the gist of it. Um, so they, they did the revisionism they need to do to say, we were there at the time. That was our names on those bills. And they were championing this commercial style because it's worked out, right? It is... There's politicians like a couple of things. They like their districts, they like praise, and they love standing next to a winner. That is the thing that they crave is to say, look at me, I'm standing next to this thing that's working out. And I think that shows that he's willing to embrace that model in this new era. He's, it's an unstoppable force in the industry, and it would be silly to try to stand in the way of it. So he seems to be embracing that. Um, even in the hearing, he said, I think NASA made the decision they needed to make with this human landing system selection. So he seems to be endorsing that as well even with people asking about competition and things like that. He seems all in on the current NASA methodology. Uh, Jim Bridenstine, as you mentioned him, he endorsed Bill Nelson as well. So it seems like there's going to be some good continuity here, and I'm a little less worried about it than I was when it was initially announced. Mm -hmm. Standing next to a winner, that's why I always invite you onto this podcast, Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) Stuck the landing. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony Colangelo is the host of the Main Engine Cutoff podcast. Anthony, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Brendan. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe to it on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org slash space. You can also stay connected to this show on social media. Give our Facebook page a like. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There? It is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 